Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Very excited today because we're talking about something that I know absolutely nothing about. And I don't think Zach does either, do you? No, that makes two of us, because today we're talking about Vikings, but not as you might expect, because we're about to learn how a lot of what we thought we knew is actually total nonsense. So it's just a kind of classic history hack yeah, and butter podcast. We're just going to mess with our listeners. We found a new way to mess with you today, and it's Vikings. So we are joined by Annie Humphrey, a PhD researcher at Trinity College, University of Dublin, who is an expert on Irish perceptions of Vikings. Annie, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. Not bad at all. We're so looking forward to this one. There was a bun fight amongst the, the History Hack staff about who was going to get to do this one because we were all like, I want to do it, I want to do it. Uh, yeah, so I don't know about you, Zach, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to, to being on, so thank you very much for having me. Shall we start with the popular perception, first of all, because I know your research explodes a lot of the myths about Irish Viking relations in this period. Up until now, how have people generally described the interaction between the two? Well, a lot of people think that um, the Vikings in Ireland uh, only participated in hit and run raids. They showed up, sacked monastery, head off again. But the fact is that a lot of the major towns in Ireland today were actually founded by Norse speakers. And they continue to be a really important piece of the political landscape in Ireland for hundreds of years. Um, But it wasn't as simple as a bunch of people came from Scandinavia, settled, that was the end of that. They operated this interesting sort of uh, uh, Irish but Norse culture alongside the Gaelic-speaking Irish um, right up until the Norman Conquest and even in some ways after that. So um, it's, uh, it's my privilege to, to talk about um, uh, the way that these, these peoples lived alongside each other, even though they had very different languages, cultures, ideas, technology, things like that. So what's really interesting for me, because in your notes you mentioned um, – that the impact of the Vikings is huge. Is it right that we wouldn't have Dublin, Wexford and a whole host of other towns without them? Well, I'm sure something would have grown up at some point, but that is absolutely true that um, Waterford, Limerick, uh, to a smaller extent, Cork, um, and definitely Dublin were um, Viking powerhouses. And um, it was their their uh, settlements by the Norse people that made them into the important centres that they are today. See, I'm really interested in the source base for your research as you've kind of gone in and exploded all of these myths because you're using three texts. Now, for myself and Alex, 
historians of kind of 19th, 20th century, the idea that you've only got three texts to work with is just kind of slightly, slightly agonizing. You can do that in a day then, right? <laughs> well, if you can translate Middle Irish in a day, be my guest. No. Um, <laughs> they're long um, texts; they're they're not tiny. But yeah, the the texts I'm doing are three texts from between 10:30 and 11:30 that were written as sort of uh, long praise poetic narratives um, about an illustrious ancestor of a contemporary to the author uh, 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 patron. So. So it's it's these these lovely long complicated convoluted historical narratives that um, are are all working to show their their ancestor in in a glorious light, and these three texts in particular are showing their ancestors as being this hero over the Vikings. And yet, when you actually read the texts, we find that the Norse have a much more complicated relationship with this Gaelic ancestor than simply their enemies. So this is wealthy Gaelic patrons um, who have, and and I've noticed as well from your notes that there is, there's going to be some contradictions when we talk about what the sources contain because they've survived by being friendly with the Vikings. So that's going to skew their perception. So these are wealthy Gaelic patrons who have decided that they need to commemorate their own relatives. And in doing so, we've got these sources about the Vikings. Is that right? Exactly right. And yeah, and so, so they, they sort of make their, these ancestors make their mark by, by either kicking out or ruling over Norse people in Ireland. But in order to do that, they need to ally with uh, other Norse in Ireland. So, um, you know, it's, it, there's, it, it indicates that there's a lot more complicated relationship than simply Gaelic Irish good, Norse yeah. Vikings bad. And how do and, they reconcile, um, the Vikings trashing their homeland with the, obviously it's turned out to be for the best for their families. How do they reconcile that? Well, it's, it's, uh, there's as many answers as, as there are texts. And so I've got, I've got sort of three different answers. And even then within the texts, it's, it's a complicated story. Um, but, you know, it's funny, Alex, that you say that they're trashing. Well, you know, <laughs> Ireland before the Norse was, was a lot of, of, um, neighboring kingdoms, although perhaps kingdom isn't the correct word, um, because these were much smaller, um, uh, units of land um, ruled over by a dynastic family. So um, Dr. Boyle has, uh, Dr. Lizzie Boyle just suggested that perhaps we should be using counts to talk about these people rather than kings, um, because there, there was not this concept of, of one big nation that was meant to be ruled by one king. It was sort of all these, these neck by jowl uh, uh, kings sort of fighting over land, but also intermarrying and, and finding different ways to, to, uh, maintain a sense of peace among each other. And so when the Norse show up, it's not that they're suddenly wrecking monasteries and, and sacking lands in a way that had never seen before. The Gaelic Irish had been doing that for, for many generations before the Norse came. They just got really mad that the Norse were doing it too. Um, so, uh, uh, so these, these tales have to, to say, you know, oh, what a, what a, a terrible shame and scourge and problem that these Norse were. Um, but it also kind of has to admit that these Norse were just as bad as, as the Gales were. Um, and so, so even in the, the texts themselves, we have, um, Gaelic dynasties dinning up, um, joining up with the Norse against our intrepid hero as he 
teams up with other Norse forces. So it's it's really a lot more complicated uh, than than simply these Norse came out of nowhere and wrecked everything. It's sort of there was a a, a big uh, convoluted um, political landscape that the Norse found themselves um, uh, able to adapt to and take advantage of, but also join in. That's one thing I think people don't give the Vikings credit for being smart and they're brute force. Yes, but they are smart as well. Aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and towns in particular, I think are, are really, really important aspects to, to their way of life in terms of Irish history. I mean, we'd said, you know, already said that um, uh, most of the, the, the big towns in Ireland um, in, in the southern half are, are of Norse origin, but it's not that they, you know, came over from Scandinavia with the idea of a town firmly planted in their heads. Dublin and Limerick and Waterford are contemporary with the big Norse towns of Burka, Hedeby, Kapam, like it's, it's sort of a, a, a cross Northern European idea of how useful a town can be for mercantile activities, for military activities. Um, so it's, it's the sort of interesting post-Roman uh, uh, reinvention of the town in these territories that were outside of the Roman Empire. So what's the focus, though, when they're putting together this kind of concept of we need a town for certain purposes? Are they thinking about additional conquest? Is it a raiding base? Is it, as you say, kind of predominantly a, a merchant hub, if you will? What's the thinking? That's an excellent question, Zach. And then definitely the answer varies on, on when you're talking about. Because at the very, very beginning, they're clearly only military bases. The, the term for them, long fort, really means a, a fort where you would pull up a ship onto land and secure a perimeter around it. And that's about it. And that's why archaeologically, even though that's outside of my specific research, archaeologically it's really fascinating because there's, there's all this, this quest to find the original long fort when you sort of have to acknowledge that it was probably just a bunch of stakes in the ground, there's probably not a, a big um, uh, amount of evidence for it um, that, that would survive if, if there even was much in the first place. But over time, these towns become um, more uh, stable. They take more from the hinterlands around them, um, but then they also provide more security, more opportunities for trade, um, more goods for, for use to, to these hinterlands as well. And so um, over the centuries that the Norse were here, these towns went from these sort of slapdash military enclosures to um, dynamic and, and fascinating um, interfaces between, you know, the f- inland farming communities and then um, international, really, trade. I mean, national in a, in a, in a pre-modern sense. Yeah. But, um, you know, <laughs> people, people could easily get a ship from Dublin uh, and go anywhere in Northern Europe, including Iceland, including um, anywhere in Scandinavia. So, you know, you, you bring your goods to Dublin and they can go very, very far. Um, and that, that gave Norstown such a, a luster and a power um, in even beyond an economic sense. We've talked about why these texts got written that you, that you use. Um, what do we know about who wrote them? So that is a great question, Alex. And, and when Zach and I were, were um, initially chatting about this, I, I kind of said, you know, we don't have an author name. And that sort of um, mysticizes, but also uh, makes these sources more useful to us because um, the people who wrote these 
uh, were likely secular as in not clerical because there was a tradition of, of uh, literacy in Ireland uh, alongside the church, not necessarily clerical people. But unfortunately, we are before the time that we know exactly what families, what names are associated with these texts. So for me as a historian, I still find a lot of value in these texts, even though I can't pinpoint exactly what school uh, the person who, who composed them were for. Um, and it is a shame that I can't, you know, say thanks to this person. Um, but, you know, all, all, we can, all we can know is that they were, they were writing history to make a buck, which I completely sympathize with. <laughs> they were getting paid. They're doing better than most of us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not a business model that I'm familiar with, but, yeah. you know, good for them. <laughs> I, I want to touch on something that you've mentioned slightly already in that you've got very different kind of attitudes and tones coming out of these three different texts. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I think it's probably going to surprise our listeners that there isn't kind of this uniform sense of, as, as you kind of said, you know, Gaelic's good, Vikings bad. So um, the, the earliest of the texts that I'm covering is um, recovered from the fragmentary annals of Ireland. Um, and so it's sort of uh, known as the Lost Saga, the Kerbal of Osiri Saga. Um, and it's about this guy, Kerbal MacDonnelly, um, who died in 888. And we suspect that it was written for um, his descendant, uh, Megillaforic, uh, who was a king of Ossory and Leinster in southeastern Ireland. He died in 1039. So that's why I say this text is, or me and other scholars say this text is from about the 1030s. Um, and so in this, uh, uh, Dr. Claire Downham has done some really interesting stuff where we see sort of um, three different kinds of Vikings. Uh, we have the Danar, sometimes translated as Danes, but we're not quite at the level of, of Scandinavian nationalism. Um, that's a whole other thing. Um, but we have the Danar, we have the Lachlany, and we have the Gael Gaul. And there's this, this um, she calls them the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's this idea that um, some of them are sort of proto-Christians. They, they know about St. Patrick, so they kind of, you know, abstain from meat in the honor of St. Patrick. And so the text is like, well, you know, they're, they're trying. They don't know any better, but they're trying. They're almost Christians. And then the Lachlani are, are these, you know, really insidious, evil conniving idolaters so so they're the the irredeemable heathens but then the absolute worst what dr down calls the the ugly are the gale gall who are the native gaelic irish who have joined the norse they've revoked their baptism and gone off and joined the norse and they're just the absolute worst of the worst these these apostates um, that, you know, must be destroyed. And so our hero, Kerbal McDonnelly, you know, allies with the Danar, you know, these proto-Christians. So we're like, okay, cool. But then sometimes he's just as quick to to um, uh, join up with the Lachlani against the Danar. It's just this this big mess. And um, in, in the book that came out just a few years ago, um, uh, Colin Etchingham is, is saying, um, you know, <laughs> is this really all in Kerbal's favor, you know, it seems like he's, he's almost a clownish figure in the way that he hops from, from supporting one Norse faction against another. Um, and, and so we just have to say that in the 1030s, um, the, this, this idea of, of 
good and bad Norse and Gale just hadn't really crystallized. So then my next text is, is the most famous within um, uh, the Irish canon. If there's, if there's one name people know from, from Ireland and Viking Irish history, it's Brian Baru. And so this text is called Cog Gaelrigalov and or war of the gales against the foreigners and this is all about how um ireland specifically munster the the um, southwestern portion of ireland was just utterly utterly um enslaved and entrapped and and troubled by the norse and no one could rise against them until um uh, brian and his brother mcavoy stepped up and and was able to turn the tide and um uh, able to, to not only subdue the Norse within Munster, but then also rise up against the Norse, ultimately um, resulting in the Battle of Clontarf just outside of Dublin in 1014. Um, but, you know, even the reason this text is, is most famous, I should mention, is because it was really picked up as a kind of symbol of Irish nationalism. Brian, Brian Baru really got painted as the original Irish standing against the foreign invaders. So, so much was painted onto his, uh, his, his struggles and, and really seeing this, this proto-Irish nationalism in his, you know, own personal dynastic interests. Um, uh, sort of, sort of a, a modern application of Irish nationalism onto onto um, his own activities, and uh, so this text, you know, cult, uh, culminates in the the this battle just outside Dublin, where so many Norse are are summoned and killed um, by Brian and his forces. But if you if you read carefully, you see that not only are the men of Leinster in um, southeast Eastern Ireland, uh, fighting against Bryant's. Um, Bryant's side itself includes men from Limerick and from Cork and from Waterford, um, i.e. the Norse. So there's also Norse on, on Bryant's side. Um, and it's right there in the text, you know, sometimes people try to, to be all like, well, they didn't, no, they totally did. They, you know, these, these people writing about 1100, um, you know, totally acknowledged that there was, there was Norse on, on Brian's side. Um, it's, it's, you know, again, this, this awareness of the reality of Ireland at this point where, you know, generations of Norse speakers had been living and operating in Ireland. People had uh, intermarried. Um, slavery was and concubinage was also a thing. So we have this this integration of all levels of society at this point. Um, it's really just a, a, a lot more of a, an awareness of, of the larger implications. And then finally, the final text, um, which uh, called Cahram Kelikon Kashal, or the, the Battle Deeds of Kelikon of Kashal, um, was written for Cormac McCarthy, who uh, was was sort of um, in opposition to Brian's descendant, Murkertak, who Kogut was written for. Um, and so it's this, this weird sort of bit of fan fiction of Kogut, where it's sort of saying, yes, yes, well, Brian was great, but really he was just picking up the pieces left by our ancestor, Kelikon. Um, and so it's this, this sort of bit of fan fiction about how Kelikon was really the, the real fighter. Um, but again, this, uh, at this point, a century after the first text, now the, the Norse are, are seen as sort of um, much more integrated into society. There's really not that much difference between 
um, uh, the Norse and the Gales. They 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 differ only in their technology um, and in in the way that they they uh, operate militarily. Um, but there's there's not a sense so much of of the people themselves being different. It's it's sort of um, the Norse are what they do rather than what they are. Um, and so I just, the reason that, that these, these three texts are probably the, the best well known of this sort of genre of literature. Um, but in particular, I liked picking them because you see this arc of a century and then an arc of a generation between the first and the last and the middle and the, the last texts. This sounds kind of like a logical progression, doesn't it? From that sort of almost divide and rule mentality that you see at the start of stabbing people in the back and then counter uh, counter stabs in the back and and so on this almost sort of anarchic way of just trying to secure some one-upmanship in with a lack of centralized authority and and trying to capitalize on um scenarios compared to the end of the century when you've got a much more harmonious almost sort of acceptance of the fact that the, the cultures have started to integrate i think so yeah If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I have um, two nerdy questions before uh, that are not on the list. So how, what is the whole span of the Norse in Ireland? Great question. So the first Viking raids, as they yeah. were, um, were were in the Dublin Bay area in 795. Okay. And um, while the settlement of the towns is a little bit murky, uh, traditionally 840 or 841 is yeah. the the uh, settlements of Dublin. Okay. Um, there appears to have been some some pushback. Uh, the Norse might have left Dublin, but then it was only the elites. Um, or perhaps there was no uh, problem. But either way, um, we're talking about the Norse in Ireland right up until the Anglo-Normans in 1166. Henry II came over 1168. And the Norse were still there. Years. Exactly. It's a huge amount of time. And it's the a huge amount of time. sources that you've got, they cover... The, do they, they, they cover narratively? Yeah. 
Narrat yes, great question. Narratively, they cover from the very first incursions of the Norse. Okay. So, so that very tail end of the 8th century, all the way. I mean, it's into... a pretty good span that you've got. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, as well, so we, we kind of had a joke, like, Zach and I, uh, like, complain about how many sources we've got, and we've got stuff, digitised stuff coming out of our ears, and our biggest beef is when we can next get in the National Archives to get a piles more of the stuff. Um, you, This, in comparison, is not a huge source base to work with. Do you use, we're interested to know, whether you use archaeology to supplement what you find in there, or is it just a completely different discipline, and it's just operating on other aspects so differently that it that it's no use to you? Can you, can you back up your sources, basically? I see. That's an excellent question, Alex. I'm personally not using archaeology myself um, to construct my arguments because my arguments are fully literary-based. They're fully based on word choice, narrative, um, uh, these, these construction of written sources is the work that I am doing. But I do rely on... Um, uh, sources that avail of archaeological evidence um, and and occasionally touch on um, uh, uh, articles and and discoveries that have been made about things like when and where corn hoard coin hoards are found and what that can indicate about Norse activity in Ireland because there's very next to no use of coins before the Norse are so when you have piles of coins showing up in Ireland um, for example that's that's a pretty good you know um, beginning point of, of Norse activity as an instance um, I'm not I'm not weighing my argument on it but um, it's certainly a very important aspect to the study of the Norse in Ireland and what do th these texts tell us about technological differences? Because you mentioned about how in time you get assimilation, but initially you haven't really got that, presumably. You've got Viking technology, you've got Gaelic technology, and they've developed in different ways. So talk us through that, because I gather that there are some contradictions in the writing. Aren't there? Excellent. Yeah. So, so, um, so Zach's mentioning this, this concept of, of the Norse of the armor is, is a variation of a phrase that we see throughout in these texts. There's this concept that the, the Norse who wear chain mail are very different and have very different ideals and tactics and, um, investment in battle because they walk into battle wearing heavy, heavy armor in a way that, that the Irish didn't. Um, and I think that really threatens the Irish, um, and, and we can talk about masculinity uh, in a bit, but um, it, it really dramatically uh, uh, affects the nature of combat when, when you have a combatant who's uh, trained in wearing very heavy armor that will, you know, repel all but the stoutest sword and axe and, and spear blows. Um, you also have ship technology. And it's, you know, it's not that the, the Irish couldn't get to the, the continent or anything like that, but these these long ships that, that the Norse had were just the pinnacle of ship technology where they could simultaneously go on the sea and very far upriver because the draft of the space, um, how much, uh, how deep the ship goes into the water was very, very light. Um, and so... Uh, they combined um, uh, 
uh, easy overseas travel with easy river travel in a way that the Irish had never seen before. And I think that as well was really uh, intimidating and even concerning to the Irish in terms of, of how um, outclassed they were uh, in terms of, of military and navigational technology. But these stories um, will continually paint the, the, the Norse as the Norsemen of the armor and the Norsemen of the ships. And they sort of like imply that the Gaelic Irish were just like, well, guess these neighbors have this great new technology that we're just going to get completely rolled over by when archaeologically we see um, uh, Irish starting to pick up um, shipbuilding and armor wearing and other other aspects of, of, of Norse technology as fast as they could. I mean, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, like, like, um, kings of Connacht, you know, commissioning fleets, entire fleets to be at their disposal. Um, so that is an interesting discrepancy between these narratives and the archaeology, where where the narratives go, ah, yes, we, we civilized <laughs> Gaelic Irish would never do such a thing. Please, please build me some ships. I really need some ships. You know, it's, it's um, a, a clear, clear discrepancy. Um, as well as characterization of, of the way that these, these Norse are, are different from us Gales in Ireland. Is there a sense of how quickly they pick up this technology? Is it a case of, you know, a couple of encounters and you realise they have the edge, now we need to start absorbing some of these better ideas? Do they start to just kind of copy? Do they come up with their own adaptations? How does it work? Honestly, Zach, I don't think there's enough archaeological evidence that we could we could easily construct a story, but... My goodness, if, if, if some military historian wants to uh, start digging into that, I would also be very interested in, uh, in, that, in the answer to that question. There you go, Zach. Next job. <laughs> Next job. I need a yeah. job, so great. Why not? <laughs> One of the other things that your research is t- uh, touching on, and it's, it's always in the news and everybody's interested in this now, is gender. Um, mm. You found some really interesting differences in how gender is represented, both Norse and Gaelic, haven't you? Yes, yes. I, I presented about it um, at, at Durham Memso this past summer with the really sexy title of The Three Genders of Pre-Norman Ireland. Um, but it was, <laughs> the title was, was really much too, much too uh, uh, cool for, for me to, to live up to it because, you know, I didn't, I didn't account for monastic living or, or other ideas of gender. But the, my basic premise was that there are Norse ways to be masculine in these texts, and there are Gaelic ways to be masculine, um, and they're very, very different. But the way to be female, to be an ideal woman, um, is the exact same if you're Norse or you're Gael in these texts. And I found that really, really interesting. So I mentioned that um, uh, the, the Norse way of combat involves um, wearing, I mean, probably not everybody was able to own a full you know, hauberk of, of chainmail, yeah. but, you know, you would, you wear, would wear as much armor as you could manage. Um, and so you'd be slow, um, but you'd, you'd be sort of a, you know, a, a heavy phalanx. Um, and in some of these texts, they even describe them as a city of, of men, um, you know, kind of tying them into the fact that they, they live in towns in a way that the Irish didn't really do beforehand as well. So, so they'd be this, this, this strong, bulky, but slow and and almost almost cheating that they're they're going in encased head to foot in metal. Um, 
But then the Irish, the Gaelic Irish, are leaping about in their linen tunics. Um, <laughs> it's really very funny to, to um, you know, to, to see this as, as you know, uh, oh, that's their, their, their gross, bulky masculinity. And we Gales have the better masculinity because we were so shiny in, in our jeweled shirts and, and unencumbered. Oh, you see this that? American football with the helmet and the shiny <laughs> versus the rugby players uh, that granted aren't tackling each other around the throat, but still no <laughs> padding, filthy, dirty. Uh, yeah. See, both incredibly masculine. But exactly. Exactly. Just different ideas of masculinity. And I just, I personally thought that was so fascinating because um, you know, medieval concepts of masculinity uh, or gender, I should say, um, seem to be a lot more ladder-like rather than binary, where where um, you know there's there's activeness and and these these masculine qualities and then feminine qualities of of um, you know domesticity and stuff are are not really seen as like equally important. They're kind of seen as like a lesser form of masculine. I mean, that's again, that's a whole other other topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I find it so fascinating that in these texts, um, you know, the uh, the Norsemen are praised for for their their bulkiness and and use of armor, whereas the the Gales are are praised for for their not using armor. Um, but then um, the women. Uh, just pass completely differently um, where where they're you know shown as as cunning and finding ways to to talk about things and and enact uh, 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 make men do the things that they want them to but the Norse are shown Norsemen are shown in the exact same manner as the Irish women and I think that's because at this point you're starting to to not be able to tell them apart so easily these these um, particularly the elite families have been intermarried for for generations and so they're almost certainly bilingual um, bicultural they're they're operating in, in both of these worlds um, you know raising their children probably in two different languages uh, so that you know they can talk to their mother's family as well as their father's family uh, and and so it's just this fascinating thing where, where women are expected to to operate the same in both societies but Norse and Gaelic masculinity are, are two very distinct and and not not um, uh, not things you can weave together comfortably. Is that because potentially of the contradictions that you've got between these Gaelic patrons who want to kind of present the Gaels in the best possible light, but also they've worked with the Vikings and they owe a great deal to the Vikings. You've got this assimilation, so it, it's quite difficult to kind of say that the enemy is non-masculine because actually the the story is so much more complex it is it is and i really think that they they lean into this this idea of of the norse being um so terrifying in battle because the gales have to run at them in in their linen shirts and again i'm I'm, i highly doubt that was actually true i'm pretty sure if if you could afford armor and it existed but it's interesting isn't it are you the bigger man if you've got all the armor or are you the bigger man if you don't have it and you're going to take that guy up Exactly, exactly. And then, Alex, the, the really important thing is that um, th- when this armor is used against the Norse, 
um, most most dramatically in Kaga, that tale about Brian Baru, um, at the Battle of Clontarf, uh, they were fighting on a tidal flat, and the tide came in, and all the Norsemen drowned. So it was it was sort of this this dramatic uh, uh, um, the the specific term um, uttered by by um, Brian's daughter. Uh, Slain, who had been married to the king, the Norse king of Dublin. Here's an excellent example of yeah. this intermarriage. <laughs> said, "Ah, I see the Norsemen are going into their inheritance, the sea," which is a very cheeky thing to say <laughs> to her, her <laughs> Norse husband, watching all his troops drown. But there you go. <laughs> so, with religion, it's really interesting because you have this perception of. Or, or we generally have this perception of pagan Vikings versus Christian Irish. But I gather from everything that we've said that it's it's not that simple. And actually, it's a lot more subtle. So talk us through it. Okay, so I'm actually working on this chapter now. And I've purposely left this chapter for the end because it's such a deliciously complicated idea that um, when the Norse first arrive in Ireland, they are not Christian in the sense that they're that Scandinavia was fully incorporated into the Christian church. So in that regard, yes, they are heathens and polytheists and and thus, you know, antithetical to the uh, Christian Ireland, which had been operating um, under under the church for hundreds of years at this point. So, yes, there is this um, uh, meeting of the worlds, this clash of cultures when the Norse first arrived. But... The Norse were fully aware of the church, you know, they, they had been, been operating in the North Sea for, for generations now and, and, um, conversion was slowly but surely happening throughout Northern Europe. Um, so, so this idea that, um, you had this, this monolithic heathen identity of the Norse coming to, to, to rape and pillage the, the pure Christian Irish um, is pretty quickly thrown under the bus, um, at the, the very least, um, with all these intermarriages of, of the Norse in Ireland, the uh, Hiberno Norse, the, the, the Norse who were resident in Ireland, very quickly Christianized and um, uh, became part of, of Christendom, out part of the Christian world. Um, just it was politically expedient for for no reason if other than that. Um, and then again, you know, we're reading these texts, and these these gales are supposed to be so holy and perfect, um, but they themselves are sacking monasteries. We saw I mentioned already how there were were. Um, Gaelic Irish who specifically revoked the baptism so they could join the Norse. Um, and also a bunch of supernatural stuff is going on too. In Kogid, one of Brian's allies is a supernatural figure, um, uh, Dunlang Hardigan. And, and it's never really explained why this sort of um, uh, malicious, mischievous spirit who, who comes and kills Brian's enemies for him why is that okay? Why, why does, why does this very Christian martyr Brian get to have um, a supernatural entity working for him? Um, it's, it's never quite explained. And so, so the way I'm kind of tackling this in, in my, my chapter on religion and culture is that, again, I think the Irish saw way more of themselves in the Norse than they were comfortable with. And so these narratives um, are, are, are trying to, to drive a wedge 
um, between between um, Gaelic Irish worldview and uh, Norse worldview, but really there there wasn't that much of a difference in, in terms of um, the way that they participated in larger you know, European church movements and, and were aware of them, um, but kind of also had, 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 uh, things that priests probably weren't very happy about, such as, such as, um, uh, banshees and, and, and other supernatural things in, in the way that they operated. It's, it's just a lot more complicated than, than straightforward. So this malevolent spirit that you were talking about, is this basically, <laughs> is this basically an Irish Merlin? Oh, I don't know. Oh, it's just, I, I wish I had more information about it, Zach, but I was rereading my supervisor, Sean Duffy's book, um, Brian Brew and the Battle of Clontarf. I was reading it in preparation for this interview. Um, and, and he's, he's just so flippant about the character because there's really not much to say. It's, it's just, uh, and he appeared at Brian's side and said, which of your enemies would you like me to kill for you? Oh, <laughs> I, I need one of those. I know. We're all just reading this. <laughs> Like wow, yeah. Maybe <laughs> not ill, but maybe just some like <laughs> some like really bad skin condition for a few weeks or something to break out of acne. Um, yeah, I have a list. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 cool, you know. It's it's cool that this 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 stuff just appears in in these these Middle Irish narratives, and everyone's like, all right, cool. That's that's how it goes. And and the night before the battle, there's there's you know. Uh, uh, malicious birds and satyrs and witches and demons like screaming through the air and everyone's just like oh I see it's going to be a, one of those battles. Do you know what though there is an outstanding book coming out very soon because we've been asked if we want to interview the author and what it is is a history of Britain but it's done as if you took all of those medieval stories and used them as your source material and they were real so it's like a supernatural history Oh, is well, it's like a history of Britain, but written from a medieval perspective, where they just do believe this stuff. So it's Hilda. Yeah, it's going to be good. The kid, the kid show Hilda. Have yeah, you ever seen it? Me. Exactly. Yeah, my my son's five, so we love watching Hilda, where it's a world where trolls and everything exist, but you just keep on about your day. Yeah. Which I could never do so much with Clifford the big red dog because if a dog came walking past and was bigger than your house, you'd have issue with it, right? You wouldn't just be like, yeah, big red dog. You'd, you'd shoot it. <laughs> the army would be there with tanks. <laughs> Where does it poo? That's the and that's why I'm thinking about how big the poo is. If, if it craps <laughs> and it's bigger than your car, then it's not right. But no, this stuff we love. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. Where's all your research going? What's it going to end up in? Tell us you're doing a book. Oh, I wish, I wish. Um, so let me write, let me finish the PhD first. That's the main thing. But yeah. yes, I would like, I would like to, to, uh, write a, a more general audience book about the Norse in Ireland because ultimately, I was saying to Zach earlier, ultimately my interest is in the way that pre-modern peoples, um, related to each other. Um, because I think it's it's very easy to to fall into a trap of of a very um, homogenous Europe uh, before a certain period um, yeah. when you know there's there's clearly uh, uh, so many different ideas of culture and 
and religion and language and peoples going on, um, I think it's really important to kind of set the record straight on how medieval people felt about each other. What um, I love and- is the absolute way you have to suspend our ideas of nationalism as well and like of what it means to be a people or a country because it just it's completely different, isn't it? It is, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, as soon as you get that book deal, let us know and you'll have to come on and talk to us some more. I I will gladly take you off on that offer, Alex. (laughs) Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.